This week's episode is brought to you by Ozma Young. Thank you, Ozma Young. It's with the generous support of listeners just like you that helps keep our tactical shock troopers in a state of meta-dimensional non-local hypersleep and are set to awaken with enormous injections of adrenaline when the tentacle monsters frozen at the North Pole emerge from their aeons-long hibernation cycle and threaten humanity once again. If you'd like to help quell the threat of extinction by tentacle monsters or just hear the second half of this episode, then please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit where your monthly donation of just five bucks will not only get you instant access to this extended episode but all our extended episodes browsable conveniently from right within Spotify but that's not all I'll send you our world famous 5x5 vinyl sticker of our big bunny Baphomet cover art guaranteed to convince everyone who sees it that you're a bona fide member of the Illuminati but if that's not enough if you subscribe right now I'll send you the keys to our private discord server where we discuss us the last time we accidentally lit ourselves on fire. If you enjoy the free section of the show well enough, but would rather save your five greenbacks for a travel-sized bottle of sunscreen, then please consider giving our show a like, subscribe, or share on your social media platform of choice. After all, it's the little things like that which add up and help grow the podcast. And for that, we thank you immensely. In this week's show, we continue with part two of our deep dive into the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas from the apocryphal Nag Hammadi Library, which which advertises itself as the collected sayings of the one and only Jesus Christ. In this portion of our discussion, we get into some of the darker, even chilling admonitions by the Son of Man about the horrifying truths of living in an evil simulation run by ignorant tyrants. We compare and contrast the words and imagery of Christ's teachings alongside the canonical Bible and other religious philosophies like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Egyptian mythology, and even Aleister Crowley's Thelemic Book of the Law to unveil some truly surprising and remarkable overlaps. Thank you, and enjoy the show. So who is the first person to download something from the cloud onto two tablets? Moses. Yes! You got one. Finally. Ari's got a point on the board, for the record. (laughs) Okay, smart people. Who is the greatest financier in the Bible? Who? Noah. He was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. Oh, Eh. that's so good. That's deep. How do we know Peter was a rich fisherman? By his net income. Oh. Ah, okay. Another financial one. How long did Cain hate his brother? How long? Oh, I know. I know. As long as he was able. Yes. 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 (laughs) I'm on fire today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Whole Rabbit, where we don't just tell you the world is a mean, flesh-eating, bloodthirsty, soul-sucking simulation for the human spirit designed to cultivate your precious vital essence, only to have it feasted upon by the tyrannical squad of idiot Archon space overlords in the fourth dimension. Nay, we intercept a rebel signal beam to us on a cosmic living beam of light of preternatural intelligence designed to inform our plan of subterfuge against the Black Iron Prison because this week we're discussing round two of the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas. I'm your host, Luke Madrid, also known as the Hack Rabbit. I'm joined this week by the madness in the Matrix, Mari Sama. 
Hey, y'all. The Manichaean Mastermind, Malachor 5. What's up? And the hero of the holographic hieroglyphs, Heka Astra. Hello. You know, I heard babies don't cry because they're sad. They cry because they're angry. I think Jesus was right about kids. They already know life is cruel and unfair. Why would kids act that way unless there was some innate knowledge about the fact they were getting the short end of the stick somehow? Yeah, that's kind of weird. It's like, they're not that smart, right? They shouldn't know the difference, but they cry for a reason. They kind of do. Like, we know they don't sit around like, oh no, I'm so sad. I haven't had the titty in so long. Woe is me. Everything is terrible. I got poo-poo in my pants. They're like, I want titty. No! Give me titty. Ya bitch! Ya dumb bitch! Give me the titty! This get power here! Titty! Okay, we get the picture, man. I'm sorry. It's okay. Well, I mean, I, I reckon it's because, too, if you come and materialize, uh, you were previously a, some kind of spirit being, then, yeah, I mean, it's probably pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, it must have been, like, all titty all the time. And then they come down here, and it's like, oh, what is this crap? <laughs> and if that seems unrelated to you somehow, I want you to keep this in mind, because as we continue in the Gospels of Thomas, we're going to discover a frustrated, disenfranchised, disenchanted perspective of the world. And there's no way to obscure that, even if it's true. It's a bit edgelordy, you know? I just want to play devil's advocate for someone who's so into this stuff. This is basically the angsty goth kid version of religion. So, so grow your hair out and put on that eyeliner. Let's get started. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, go listen to the previous episode. This is part two. So we left off at verse 31 at the end of the extended show last time. Yes. And now we're on to verse 32. Jesus said, a city built on a high hill and fortified cannot fall, nor can it be hidden. This sounds like a variation on the notion that the truth does not need protecting. On the other hand, it's like a tiger being freed from its cage. The thing people seek protection from, the wisdom of Jesus Christ is similar in that once it's unleashed, mankind can either hide from it or hope to defeat it. With such wisdom, if you're the one who possesses it, you may expose yourself to attack, but you'd also be possessed of the one thing that'd make you invulnerable to this attack. The idea continues to be elucidated in the next verse. I think it's summed up in Peter Parker's uncle's uh, famous quote, with great power comes great responsibility. For Spider-Man exclusively, it means something particular, but in general, it's kind of saying the same thing here. It's also like the question that comes up in Batman movies, like, you know, how far is he pushing justice that pushes other people to become more and more extreme because they notice and they're reacting to some sort of like cosmic avatar at that point if we're talking about superheroes but you know it's bringing out all the hidden things i guess against you because you're the only thing that is fortified and cannot fall and so everything's coming after you in a way i guess this reminds me a little bit of american beauty where the protagonist has this sudden awakening and it takes them until the end of the film to realize that there's a separation between the symbol and the symbolized and that's like the big conclusion of the film but leading up to that during his awakening it's like the whole world suddenly goes from totally ignoring him and not caring about him to being so bothered by him that by the end of the film multiple parties are now planning his death or have at least played with the idea and so it sounds like what jesus is saying is if you awaken or you start messing around with this wisdom philosophy it's going to put a target on your back but it's also the only thing that will allow you to fight back with said target on your back to me this line sounds a lot like like, choose ye an island, fortify it, dung it about with engineery of war. Oh my god, it does. Is that an oil tanker? Is that dung? Mmm, spread it all around. Otacon, get the dung, <laughs> light it on fire. <laughs> 
Jesus said, What you will hear in your ear, in the other ear, proclaim from your rooftops. After all, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, nor does one put it in a hidden place. Rather, one puts it on a lampstand, so that all who come and will go will see its light. Unless you're Thomas Edison, then you try absolutely everything at least once. So, this idea both resumes the notion that Christ's disciples will be a guiding light to the world, and, from the last verse, that in so doing, they will become known to the world. This also resembles the statement in verse 3, which declares that once his followers know themselves, they will be known. With this wisdom, one is becoming part of the kindling that threatens to set the world ablaze, or a seed of mustard that could come to envelop the whole field. I'm personally given the image of the hermit in the tarot with this verse, and what comes to mind is that it's not the end of the journey, though it can be all too easy to stay there sometimes. At least for me, that's how it felt. I also think that this is saying that the wisdom teachings of the ages being kept as secrets does a disservice to all. That like, here's looking at you, organized religions and secret orders, trying to cover it up with a basket. Oh, I love that take, because hiding your light is also being secretive and not showing your true self or maybe not living out your true will in real life. And notice that people that do act on their will and they do have a good life, a truth into their life, a lot of people envy and target them and then also idolize them because they're so brilliant, I guess. I think bringing up the hermit from the tarot is a perfectly apt energy to relate this saying, but also this entire corpus of work too. Because Jesus, more or less, is telling his followers to become like the hermit. You have to be outside of society. You have to tend to your inner light. And as you mentioned, you become a light for others as well, even if you're outside of society. But, you know, the hermit's on a, a high hill in his example, and everyone can see him, you know, supposedly. Yeah, he also carries it with him. Yes. And then that leads others to follow, see? So in order to become a leader, in order to become a beacon of truth and divinity itself, you have to break away from herd mentality, you have to break out of that needing to follow and you must go on your own path and your light. Now to play devil's advocate and I guess speak to the hermit card reversed kind of energy, uh, the reason why you do hide light is because light also blinds just like concealment does. But that's just a little bit of two cents from the devil's advocate side of things. Because ultimately, you're absolutely right. You want to be that beacon of hope and, you know, hope and chance for other people to find a fortified hill to stay at, hang out with the hermit. I think that's a good point because that ties into the next verse as well. Jesus said, if a blind person leads a blind person, both of them will fall into a hole. Or join Om Shinrikyo. But I do think you're right to relate this once again to the hermit because the people who don't see the light they're hopelessly lost and incapable of leading anyone else to salvation. If somebody's going to be seen and made to lead the way, it should be somebody possessed of wisdom. That, of course, is why the hermit is holding the light, but also the Hebrew letter association with the hermit is yod, which means hand, and by extension, we can see the hermit as the, quote, hand of God. He's the person who's outside of society, but in the world and able to do God's bidding. Likewise, he should be the hand that you hold on to. I think this verse is also a pretty straightforward metaphor, and it feels a bit like a reiteration of the previous verse 26 about the sliver in your friend's eye. Agreed. And this is something we'll come to notice now as we continue through the Gospels of Thomas is a lot 
lot of the wisdom is repeated, but with slight variations. And it's meant to emphasize different things or to confirm that you understood the meaning of the former verses. And oftentimes, you know you've got it when it all starts to fall into place together. And repetition without repeating actual words is actually a learning aid. So it helps you memorize it too. Especially if that's like your job and you live in the desert and it's like, I have to memorize this stuff. I can't just whip out my iPhone. But we'll see this motif continue where the wisdom or Jesus Christ represents the light. And so in this metaphor, a blind person wouldn't be able to see it. And the hole that may be mentioned could be a reference to the pit of Gehenna, hell. Or a bad situation. Or the DMV, who knows? <laughs> So moving on, verse 35, Jesus said, One can't enter a strong person's house and take it by force without tying his hands. Then one can loot his house. That's some good advice. Thanks, Jesus. Jesus Christ, the notorious Galilean G. I got a bone up here. Giving all the young bucks the straight dope about home invasion. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> weird, right? It's like, hey, uh, all you tweakers, you're, you're doing what I said to do. Just break into people's houses and see all this I have a really good music video for this, but I'm, I'm, I can't post it. I'm telling you, the man is the first rap star, and he's a gangster rap star, no less. Now, of course, this verse strongly resembles Mark 3, 27, which reads, No man can enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind a strong man, and then he will spoil his house. What the hell? Yeah, what does this mean, anyway? So far, I've heard one interpretation of this verse that makes a little bit of sense. It's a bit like the Gnostic Christian equivalent to the verses regarding the war machine that smites people in chapter 3 of Alistair Crowley's Book of the Law. In this case, the strong man is the ego. In order to overcome the ego, one must renounce material attachments and worldly possessions. In order to accomplish this task, one must bind the hands of the ego through prayer, meditation, and devotional practice. Only then may the strong man, or ego, be freed of its attachments. I hit the back window in search of any Nintendo DVDs, plasma screen TVs in the trunk. And as I just mentioned, I believe this is the correct interpretation because the following verse seems to expand on the idea. Verse 36, Jesus said, Do not fret from morning to evening and from evening to morning about your food, what you're going to eat, or about your clothing, what you're going to wear. You are much better than the lilies, which neither card nor spin. As for you, when you have no garment, what will you put on? Who might add to your stature? That very one will give you your garment. In regards to humbling our ego, a follower of these teachings is not to fret about the future and also must sacrifice their attachment to pleasure, survival, and even reputation. If we assume that having no garment is code for the soul leaving the body behind, then we may assume God as the source of our protection. So since this line and the one that follows it complement each other so well, I'm just going to put my comments for the two together right now. I like to think of this line as being relevant in life as much as it is in physical death. Like the garment is symbolic of what hides our true self, which ties into what you're saying about the ego, but also our earthly existence as a whole. You're not your body. You're not your ego. You're not your mind. And even after all of these things cease to exist, the true nature of your being is that of a naked soul. That's like an interesting point you're making there about a naked soul. It's, I guess, kind of what the idea that the born again Christian thing is trying to talk about. And they have their own way of saying it, but just for symbolic purposes, this is what people mean when they're spiritually naked and stuff like that you know they're ready for like a new yeah. level of the truth i guess so the garments that we wear 
there are what we identify with, you know, your body, your ego, your mind, and they tend to veil our true nature or soul. So he's kind of saying, don't worry about those things. They're simply what you wear. When these mortal aspects of being are stripped away and you are unveiled, what will you put on? And if we think of this as a process that isn't strictly related to dying and that it can also happen while we live, then unveiling oneself, like in the process of an ego death experience, can result in a kind of theophany. We all know that no one is born clothed, so it implies a birth of the self that is not veiled. And I like to think of this as kind of being like the marriage of the holy guardian angel. I just love the association of the ego with clothes or garments because a strong ego, like the strong man, would be, I have to wear all brand name products or people will look down on me. I have to look cool or even these like certain kind of fashion trends that happen. I feel like that all ties into, you know, having an overblown ego, whereas somebody that's more subdued and humbled and, you know, spiritually focused may just wear simple clothes or not even worry about, I don't know if you've heard about people that have like the same set of clothes than they wear every day like or like they'll have multiples of it but it's like the same t-shirt and jeans some people that are very more basic about it like i have to be this i have to be that i i i my prophet is a fool with his one 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 treating the clothes like a mask or something to hide yourself is i think what is being referred to as a strong ego what i find particularly interesting is that jesus then brings up stature he's like when there is no you who will add to your stature so the word stature has two definitions, the first being in reference to the height of something, and the second being related to the high integrity or fidelity of one's character. And it's kind of like what you're saying, reputation, like the ego and its association to reputation. So stature's etymological roots come from the Latin statura, meaning to stand or make firm. So he's saying who will add to your height or the making firm of your being. And if you just bear with me for a second, if we also take into consideration the Kabbalistic sphere of Tifereth, the marriage of the holy guardian angel, and the crossing of the abyss as a kind of fractal energetic interaction of the self-created coming into being that is said of God, then this line, I think, gets a lot deeper. Jesus compares the listener, you, to the lilies and says that you are much better. The macrocosmic self-created God, as well as the micro cosmic divine child depicted in many mythologies, including Hindu and Egyptian mythologies, they're often depicted as arising out of a lily. In Egypt, we can see this with depictions of the child Atum sitting on a blue lotus. And if we take it back to ego deaths, when an ego death occurs, you're not left afterwards as just a living creature that lacks an ego. It's not like that for very long. Another ego arises anew in place of the former one. And if one has not looked at their own darkness, or in other words, done their shadow work, then the new ego is far more likely to fall back into the same old patterns as the last one. So for every ego death, there is a rebirth of a new one. So for lilies, they're used symbolically in the Bible as well as a symbol of the Virgin Mary, purity, innocence, faith, and rebirth. This specific verse from the Gospel of Thomas is almost identical to Matthew 6 verse 25 through 34 and also Luke 12 verse 27. Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. This whole verse kind of opened up a, a whole rabbit hole for me. And I did say last episode that I was going to draw Egyptian parallels. So here I go. So first off, keeping in mind that the lilies neither card nor spin, that has to do with carding and spinning as in fiber processing, like with wool for weaving, you card wool, you spin 
in wool. So he's saying the lilies don't do that. So who does? That's weaving that's related to the goddess Nath, which we can kind of think of as being the Egyptian version of the goddess of the Gnostic Sophia. And with all this in mind, for me, reading this verse feels very much parallel to a spell from the Pyramid Tech. It's one of the spells for emerging from the Duat as Nefertem. And this is a recitation number 160 from the Pyramid of Unis. Unis? Is that a bunny? Unis is a, a pharaoh. He's got Un in his name. Yeah, you know the reference. Anyway, recitation 160 from the Pyramid of Unis goes as such. Oh, you two combatants, please tell the noble one of whatever identity Unis is that water lily that rises clean from the earth. Unis has been received by the one who made his seat. Unis is the one at the great controlling power's nose. Unis has come from the Isle of Flame. Unis having put Ma'at in it in place of disorder. Unis is the one to whom belongs the linen that the Urai guard during the night of the great flood that comes from the great goddess. Unis will appear as Nefertim, as the water lily at the sun's nose when he emerges from the Akhet every day, the one at the sight of whom the gods become clean. Just keep in mind, uh, water lily is basically womb. And so it, it may not be in the same order, but if you're familiar with Netaru and catch some of the parallels, the sentiment of this spell from the pyramid text is the same as both the Bible verses from Matthew and Luke, as well as this verse in the Gospel of Thomas. So you're saying the Bible stole from the pyramid texts? No! <laughs> no, the Bible would never steal. Religion doesn't steal. It's the truth. I'm just saying Jesus has some comedic wisdom going on. So to dig into it, the Akhet means horizon, as in the place where the sun rises. Above Tifereth is the non-sphere of Da'at, the abyss. It is distinctly related to the twin lions, Akhet, that guard the eastern and western horizons. It's the same Akhet that is implied in the combined deity of Rahur-Akhti. So you have Christ consciousness symbolized by Ra the sun and Horus of the two horizons being the divine child. The deceased is to appear as the divine child Nefertim upon emerging from the Duat in this spell. So Nefertim is known as the Egyptian lotus god, and he wears a lotus on the top of his head. The scene that the spell is referring to is often depicted with Nefertim as a naked child rising from a lotus. The famous Egyptian blue lotus is actually a kind of lily, and this symbolism is synonymous with what he represents, and that is the spontaneous creation of the world. The lotus, arisen from the primordial waters of the abyss, or waters of noon, symbolized the first sunlight. So it helps to think of the tree of life and the process of emanation. You know what this all reminds me of is the Gautama Buddha, who's often depicted sitting atop a lily. Yeah. And the exceedingly popular and effective mantra, O Manapadmi Home, hail the shining jewel of the lotus. Yeah, totally. Likewise, if you want to connect with this exact energy, that would be the mantra to use. So if we just stop a moment to contextualize this and think of virgin birth, remember, the lily is also a symbol of the Virgin Mary and the womb. And now think of the path of the high priestess from Kether to Tifereth across the abyss. Kether is Atum and Ra is Tifereth. If you're looking at Nefertum, the lotus child's name, the word for perfect or beautiful being Nefer is linked to perfection, but also zero nothingness. And that's the Nefer part of the name.
name Nefertum. The Tum part of the name is Atum. He's also called Tum or Tem or Tum. And that means completion or finish. He's basically the Egyptian version of the Gnostic Demiurge. Atum is the firstborn. So the spell from the pyramid text that Luke read is to emerge from the primordial abyss as Nefertum, an iteration of the divine child spontaneously born from the lotus as the first light out of the abyss. It makes sense to me that this applies not just to life from death in a mortal capacity, but spiritually during life as well because divine energies work in fractal natures as well. You have the whole as above, so below. So putting it all together, it's a complete middle path ascension perfected and you realize yourself into creation. You realize you are God because you are one with God. And once again, I think if this is what Jesus is saying, we've landed in some pretty heretical territory, but we are also reminded that even the lilies do not card or spin, you're better than them. But Nath does spin, so I kind of feel like with a wink we're told to relate ourselves to Sophia and not just the Demiurge. Yeah, technically the Demiurge is usually explained, at least in the Timaeus, as looking to the infinite and weaving patterns from those infinite patterns that he sees. He's the weaver. That makes sense. In fact, his name means public artificer. So there. I know, like, as long-winded as I may have been, I, I think just keeping in mind all of this in relation to ego death, rebirth, stature, standing, and that nobody is born clothed applies really well to the next line as well. I'm really stuck on the lily, though. I, I, I feel like... It's worth mentioning, the lilies blossom out of the mud, right? Oh, yeah. How did such wealth come from such poverty? I think it's the same idea. Oh, yeah. Good point. Well, miracle, miracles if the lilies came out of this slop. Verse 37. His disciples said, when will you appear to us? And when will we see you? Jesus said, when you strip without being ashamed and you take your clothes and put them under your feet like little children and trample them, then you will see the son of the living one and you will not be afraid. Oh my gosh, I vibe with this so much. I hate clothes. Just want to go to a nudist colony and just throw my clothes on the ground and stomp on them in the mud. Yeah, make it as a state of mind. This is a sort of informal ritual that people do when they arrive for the first time at Burning Man. You take off all your clothes, you jump on them, and then you bang a gong, and then you yell something. So I guess they that's, read their Gnostic manuscripts. That's cool. I'm not afraid anymore! So if we take a cue from the prior verses, we may assume that this one gives us a clue as to how the entire process works. When one is entirely shameless, totally, without attachment, and living in the wisdom of being a child of the living one, then we will be liberated of all fear of separation from the divine. Only then will God appear, once we've stripped ourselves of our attachments and attained to the purity and simplicity of children. Another interesting thing to note is that attachments aren't just material possessions, like, you know, clothes and riches. It includes your beliefs and learned responses. And if we take a cue from Jesus, he's saying to be like young children who have not yet developed these things. So putting these things beneath us, we can stand naked upon them and realize ourselves. So this imagery for me is also very much like that of standing upon the Benben, the mound of creation in Egyptian mythology. If you want to think of this maybe in a Kabbalistic sense, these identifiers of the self are like the material things also in Malkuth, and we're being called upon to 
not be too attached to them, but rather to use Malkuth as a means of ground to stand upon as we ascend up the tree. I don't know. What do you guys think? As it said, Kether is in Malkuth as Malkuth is in Kether. That's what it makes me think of. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of explaining on what that means, but it's that simple. Is that like heaven is in earth and earth is in heaven, just like heaven is within you and you don't need to look for it outside as we talked about last episode. I think maybe for a lot of people, the giving up of beliefs and learned responses is maybe the hardest attachment to overcome. Well, if the clothing is all of our personality, our preferences, our learned responses, then yeah, it's a lot to give up. It's probably almost impossible for most people. Of course, we have glimpses of it when we take psychedelics or if we do enough ritual or meditation. But essentially, to see the living father, we have to go back to screaming for titty. That's really what it's about. <laughs> well, maybe not the screaming for the titty part, but the innocence that led you to scream for titty, that's what you got to go back to. I scream, you scream, we all scream for titty. I scream at titties. So that sounds like a pair. <laughs> oh, man. Verse 38. Jesus said, Often you have desired to hear these sayings that I am speaking to you, and you have no one else from whom to hear them. There will be days when you will seek me and you will not find me. Ooh. Now, unless Jesus is flexing that he tints his windows or wears camouflage, this verse likely means that, on the hard road to heaven, there will be days when the goodness, joy, and guiding light of divinity will seem far too distant for us to see. Mama said there'd be days like this. There'd be days like this, Mama said. It's like looking for the sun at nighttime or even looking for the sun on a very overcast day. Yeah, like you can kind of see where it is behind the clouds, but it's so diffused and cloudy that you can't really tell the specific direction. When I first read this, I thought it was remarkably encouraging because we all have days like this where you can't see or feel God. You feel disconnected from your higher power, from the goodness in the universe. And as long as we've been told that ahead of time, it gives us hope that it'll return again. Man, my 5D signal just dropped out. I mean, it's way worse when you're walking around thinking like, oh, everybody else is still in touch with it. And I'm not. I'm bad. I'm shunned. I'm damned. You know, it's like, nah, this is just verse 38. You're going through it. Yeah, just because it's nighttime doesn't mean that the sun no longer exists or that it won't come up the next day. And that's good to remember when everyone around you's like, well, I haven't found the sun yet, so it doesn't exist. Or, you know, if you metaphorically live somewhere like Alaska, where like half the year is just no sun. <laughs> <laughs> that's because the earth is flat. And when the sun gets really far away, you can't see it anymore. <laughs> Oh, gosh. The sun moves? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to even explain that. I mean, it does. It's zipping around on one of the arms of the galaxy, and it's moving pretty quick, along with us in a corkscrew pattern behind it. Well, how far does it go? I don't know. <laughs> we don't, goes we don't fast. have to explain that. Goes it goes fast. fast, but where? But where to and back again? Around. It goes around. In the flat world? <laughs> well, the galaxy is pretty flat. Yeah, most of them are. Yeah. Flat galaxy crew, where are you at? It's fun Oh, yeah, that would be a good sign-up. There will be days when you look for curvature and do not find it. <laughs> Verse 39, Jesus said, The Pharisees and the scholars have taken the keys of knowledge and have hidden them. They have not entered, nor have they allowed those who want to enter to do so. As for you, be as sly as snakes and as simple as doves. I like this verse. Sounds like those Pharisees are confused escape room employees. Freaking gatekeepers. Now this one is similar to Luke eleven fifty two. Christ accuses the learned men of religion and academia for not only failing to use their knowledge to enter into wisdom themselves, but of using their status to gatekeep and prevent others from entering into wisdom as well. 
This is precisely how, almost 2,000 years later, Aleister Crowley would write of the so-called Black Brotherhood, which, failing to reach enlightenment themselves, cloister away the secrets so that the masses won't be able to either. In response, Jesus bids his followers to become like spies, cunning on the one hand, but modest in appearance on the other, something I can wholly get behind. I think it's also interesting to note as energetic pathways, the dove is an animal of ascension and the snake, an animal which which slithers upon the ground, but the dove can fly up and bring back what it has picked up. As a sky animal, it can come down. On the other hand, the snake can leave the ground and ascend up trees. It feels very much like a reference to the descent and ascent of energy associated with the tree of life. And of course, for me, and I take it over to Egypt in Kemetic terminology, the dove seems reminiscent of the primordial thoat and the many incarnations of divine birds, like the falcons of Horus and Ra, descending. And then the snake, Wajet, the Uraeus cobra, ascending or rearing up. And then if you bring it over to Thelema, in the Book of the Law, chapter 2, verse 26, Hadith says, I am the secret serpent coiled about to spring. In my coiling there is joy. If I lift up my head, I and my Nuit are one. If I droop down mine head and shoot forth venom, then is rapture of the earth, and I and the earth are one. So I think we're being encouraged to both ascend and descend, and to do so on a personal level, with cunning to journey to discover God, and with modesty realize and bring that into our lives. This in its own way is kind of a secret, because simply because it's a one-on-one -on -one experience with God. But Jesus kind of warns about taking that secrecy to the level of gatekeeping the knowledge and wisdom, because obviously Obviously, it's problematic in that it denies assistance to those who wish to experience God as well. Well, I'm happy you brought up the Kabbalistic tree of life. In terms of this tree of life, often the dove represents the descent of spirit into matter, which is Jesus, right? And then the snake is supposed to represent this matter climbing and returning back up the tree, becoming spiritualized as it goes. Yeah, and it goes through all the paths that the tarot cards of the major arcana represent in order to do that in the first place. It, and it's not as easy as the dove coming down, but it's still a process of ascension, I guess, for the snake to get up there to the top. You could say it weaves its way. Oh, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. There was a something I wanted to mention here, too. The attitude that Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of having with keeping this knowledge is very much like how psychedelics have been treated and the potential that they have for regular people. And I don't want to like talk about this too much, but you know, they don't want you to use it because like they're using it. They think we'll misuse it because we're not educated enough or enlightened enough to use it. Yeah. And 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 that's why it's gatekeeped because they know it can connect you to divinity. It is an actual easy route to realize this. You don't have to suffer and go through the whole cult experience and go through initiation. You could probably just do enough or, or the right dosage and have the right experience on LSD and and you'll be set for life, I think. I'm an advocate well, of that kind of stuff, but... There's also a certain degree of, like, ego stroking with the hierarchy within orders. And then, of course, you know, keeping it secret kind of makes people commit to an order and there's often a profit to doing so. Well, it's a power play to do it honestly. And all they see is more competition. If they allow the free exchange of this knowledge of the truth and this enlightenment, then they're basically cornered. Their monopoly is gone and they're not making you know, money. They're not controlling other people's souls or psyches 
after that. Yeah, you got to pay your fees and stroke their egos because, you know, there's a hierarchy and it doesn't matter. They're, you know, they're at the top and they have a specific order. You know what comes to mind? It's always the same answer for me, but the Roman Catholic Church. We know the Library of Alexandria burned up and along with it, aeons of collected human wisdom along with it. But of course, the Roman Catholic Church has probably got a lot of that stuff in its own secret Vatican archives, which nobody's allowed to look at. Likewise, they don't want you using magic. They're going to strut around with their elaborate regalia and wands and incense and crazy architecture. Yeah. You know, and, but tell us, like, no, don't play with tarot cards. Don't do the magic. Like, okay. Pay your alms, pass around the collection dish. And, you know, if I want one of those fancy hats and robes, the details of doing that in the Catholic Church are actually pretty sickening, to say the least. Well, and there's no guarantee either. Like, you're only allowed to have that level of attainment if they hand select you to have that level of attainment. With their hands, yes. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> that stuff. That's the only way you get those fancy hats. Oh, man. See, that it's, stuff's all fake to me. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're starting to maybe offend people. We should stop. But I like we, fancy hats. I do, too. Man, you started it, man. We, but we, if you're a Discordian, everyone's a pope, so you can wear the dumb hat if you want. Yeah, exactly. Make you, your own. Hat mine's tinfoil. You can't even get a hat if you have a vagina or identify as having a vagina. You're out of the club. If you want to dress up like a woman in a white dress, you have to have a penis. No <laughs> magic powers from Jesus. Let's get a penis. That's the rules. Well, if you're a female, you can have a, what is it called? A wimple, which is basically a veil. You're a wimple. <gasps> What'd you say about me? <laughs> you take that back. I'm sorry. That's how you get in the club. You take it in the back. <laughs> oh, God. Verse 40. Jesus said, a grapevine has been planted apart from the father. Since it is not strong, it will be pulled up by its root and will perish. Oh, back in the garden again, weeding. So well, we've been warned that on some days it'll be hard to find Jesus and on others we'll be gatekept from the mysteries. But we now learn that resigning to failure, well, that only brings death. Any pursuit carried out in absence of the father is doomed to fail. Straight too far from this wisdom is asking to be snuffed out. So even if it's hard, you still gotta, you gotta do your best. When thinking about harmonizing set aspects, I often think about the Jungian garden example of the self that I mentioned in the last episode. And what makes a seedling strong enough to grow is being subjected to certain adversarial or you could say setian elements of the environment like wind. And this is why sometimes when you start seedlings indoors and then try to transplant them outside, they simply die. And that's because they were never subjected to the adversarial elements of the external world. So if a seedling withstands natural wind, then it's more likely to thrive in its growth. On the other hand, if there's too much wind, that can also mean the death of the seedling. Uh, that's kind of weird because the way I'm, I'm picturing it now in my head for some weird reason, it's like if a baby's in the womb is still born and grows into like an uh, older child and then is somehow removed from the womb like 12 years later or however long later, they're going to fucking die. <laughs> yeah, because they're not like used to the environment that they're born into, which is uncomfortable to them at first. But they have to acclimate. And part of that is going through the hardships or the setian parts that you were saying, Heka. Yeah. And that to me, it's like getting some level of experience or like basically skidding your knees and getting scabs or breaking your bones and the bones grow back stronger. It gives you character and it gives you a certain kind of strength that you can overcome, you know, these bad times when necessary. I mean, it's kind of interesting. 
interesting too, because even in the womb, the fetus has certain processes that are protective against, you know, like impact and stuff like that. So, I mean, if you relate it to the seed, seeds also have a certain amount of protection. Right. Hardiness, I guess. Yeah. Like a lot of seeds have like a hard husk on the outside that has to be broken down. But it's also good to nourish them and shelter them. But if you do it too much, it's detrimental. But if you don't nourish or protect your seedlings, it can also be detrimental. So I think a fi- it's a fine line of balancing in the middle for that. Totally. Yeah. Elemental awareness. Also sounds a little bit like pro-dad propaganda, you know? Oh, like the tough love and rough housing and all that? We're just having one in the house sometimes. The balance of, you know, a mother and a father, which is apparently a horrible thing to say these days. But it's a formula and it does some amazing things and it's been proven over time. You goddamn fascists! I'm sorry. It's just one of the formulas, though. There's many formulas to parenting, okay? Yeah, and the only one that works is if uh, that service worker named Salarina down the block gets to raise her kids over Zoom. That's the future. No. Yes! (laughs) We're f***ed. No, I know exactly what he's talking about. We're f***ed. Look, we don't need dads, okay? Yes, we do. No! Okay, yeah, okay, maybe. I don't know. Verse 41. Jesus said... Whoever has something in hand will be given more, and whoever has nothing will be deprived of even the little that they have. Ouch! Yeah, well, at first it would seem that Jesus is now suddenly lecturing on the law of attraction, and even if it's <laughs> tempting to interpret this verse that way, it more likely refers to the notion that even if somebody only understands a little bit of wisdom, it invariably will lead to more wisdom being accumulated. On the other hand, if you understand nothing, well, they'll find it really hard to hang on to even what little they have, and even then they'll still be none the wiser. So it helps to have a little bit of wisdom because it grows into more wisdom, you see. It reminds me of the other verse that said, if you want to know things, you have to start with what's right in front of you, more or less. This for me also feels like it brings up the idea of fasting in an energetic sense from earlier verses. Like if you hold nothing or partake of nothing, you're not feeding your soul. So in the context of wisdom, if you're not fasting from wisdom, you will receive more. Ka feeds ka. Life feeds on life. Verse 42, Jesus said, be passers-by. Well, this sounds like Jesus is telling his followers to be good spies. It's more likely he's warning his followers to not consider the world their home or place of rest. We are visiting the material world, not full-time residents. In fact, the Muslim tradition ascribes a similar quote to Jesus Christ. On the main gateway of the mosque erected in 1601 at Fathpur south of Delhi by the Mughal Akbar the Great, it bears the inscription, Jesus on whom be peace said, This world is a bridge. Pass over it, but do not build your dwelling there. Or as Bruce Lee said, be like water, my friend. You gotta keep moving. And Being a your, passerby. And clean your room. <laughs> Being a passerby or fluidly moving through life as water is also kind of recognition of fluidly taking the form of the vessel that you are poured into. And externally, if you were to take the water outside of the vessel, it still follows a path of least resistance, but in accordance to the laws of its environment. It's a passerby. While it's in the vessel, it's not the vessel itself, even though it's taken the form of such. He's in poos. Thanks for letting us know, Mal. <laughs> Okay, verse 43. His disciples said to him, Who are you to say these things to us? You don't understand who I am from what I say to you. Rather, you have become like the Judeans, for they love the tree but hate its fruit. Or they love the fruit but hate the tree. Who's the fruit? This verse recounts a number of others found in Luke and Matthew, which advise that by their fruits... 
you shall know them. As it says in Luke 6, 43-45, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. In the case of this particular verse, Christ is urging his followers to judge him based on his words, which are his fruit. By these they should know him. He then lets loose a criticism, which some scholars identify as a little bit anti-Semitic, claiming that Judeans love his message but scorn him, attempting unwisely to separate the tree from from the fruit. It's kind of like saying love is the law, love under will. And to explain that a little bit more in consideration to Kabbalah and the tree of life, right? And the fruits that might be grown on it. And to Thelema, of course. Love is a law, love under will. The whole formula that creates the universe and the multitudes of it, that the things that you love and the will of God are actually hand in hand in all of that. You can't just love the fruit and not like the tree. And you can't just like be infatuated with the tree and not like care about the fruit that it's bearing. It's all together, love and will being a little bit of a Thelemic riddle that we've talked about many times in past episodes, but there's a relation between the two concepts of love and will, for sure. Everything that you guys just said, it really ties back in with the stuff that I brought up earlier about Nefer and Nefertem, because if you look at the hieroglyph for Nefer, it's a heart connected to a windpipe. It kind of looks like a cross on top of a heart. So all this stuff about love under will and what's in your heart is what what will be spoken is very much along this line, like your heart is what gives the force behind your speech. So what the heart feels, the mouth ejects, you could say. And that's why it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out. Yeah, totally. Because it's an expression of the truth of your heart. So don't do what you hate, damn it. It's, it's that simple. <laughs> I also like to think of just visually the hieroglyph for Nefer superimposed on top of the tree of life, where the heart, it kind of connects from Malkuth to Tifereth and the cross part comes up, going all the way up to Kether, and then the horizontal bar reaches out to either side. And much like how Venus' symbol can be overlaid over the tree of life, and it's a symbol of love. And in that instance, the cross is on the bottom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're very <laughs> similar. It's kind of like they're inverted. Yeah. As above, so below kind of thing. And they're related. It's like they're in harmony. They're both very much about love. Like you've got Nefer with the heart and you've got Venus. It's all about love. Verse 44, Jesus said, Whoever blasphemes against the Father will be forgiven, and whoever blasphemes against the Son will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either on earth or in heaven. Whoa! Don't give me any of your mom jokes, said Jesus. <laughs> Unforgivable. As you might imagine, interpreting this verse may become a little easier when we compare it against similar ones in Luke, Matthew, and Mark, who all claim that blasphemy against Jesus will be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels of Thomas, however, blasphemes against the Father are now included as well, with the entire Holy Trinity finding representation in the verse. This is unlike the Synoptic Gospels. Some suggest the Father may be a Gnostic code word for the Demiurge, but this too is uncertain. By including the whole of the Trinity, we may assume the Holy Spirit is probably the feminine counterpart to the Father. I think the 
is also highly important because rejecting one's own receptivity prevents the individual from divine unification. It's that earlier sentiment of holding nothing in your hands. Holding nothing could be likened to a rejection of receiving, whether that's active or passive receiving and in turn active or passive feminine energy right at some point if you're like spiritually masculine you have to open yourself up to receive god that sounds weird but like you have to switch gears it's the only way that you're truly gonna connect i mean if we're all supposed to return to being little children well if we want the titty we shouldn't blaspheme against it you know what i mean that's true don't bite the nipple that feeds you what if you'd like to hear more about the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas? What it has to do with titty or balls? These nuts. <laughs> you wrote about these nuts, right? I wrote about these nuts. Oh, good. And other Gothic edgelord versions of prototypical Christianity. Then please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit where your monthly donation of just five bucks will not only get you access to the extended version of this show, it'll get you access to all of our extended shows from our library, which is browsable right there in Spotify, which makes it very convenient. I'll send you a five by five high quality vinyl sticker of our big bunny Baphomet cover art at no additional cost. And you'll be given the secret keys to our Discord server where the birds and the bees and the boobies and the D's all hang out and make cacophonous noise like a giant symphony of body parts. You might make some friends. You might. <laughs> but don't count on it. Thank you, everybody. Eat carrots and shoot lasers. Pew, pew, pew. pew. <laughs>